Hello and welcome to the Ballot Box global election coverage from a team of political scientists. I'm Jonathan Parker in London. I'm Chris Terry in Manchester. I'm Andres Besser in New York City. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Ballot Box. Uh, this week, we're heading north. We're going to the Atlantic island of Iceland, um, which held elections um, a couple of weeks ago. I'm sorry, we're, we're slightly late on this one. But yeah. we um, we thought that uh, you know, a lot of people, um, sorry, Icelandic fans, would be maybe a bit more interested to hear about the German elections first. Mm. So we took a dive into those. There's, there's some news on the front of coalition negotiations in Germany today, which has vindicated some of our predictions. Um, I, I don't think they were particularly unique predictions, mm, but no. I feel like we've been we've been slightly vindicated. We were talking about the the, the traffic light um, coalition of the Social Democrats, Greens, and and Free Democrats would be most probable. Well, it does seem like um, mm. that the, the there is uh, three party negotiations now taking place between those parties from the government. Um, so yeah, so. Um, progressing as we expected on, on that front. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They may even have a government more rapidly than um, people were expecting, mm-hmm. as the word that is now coming out of Berlin, mm-hmm. um, which I think isn't too surprising because the result of the election kind of closes down most of the other avenues. Okay, uh, that's enough about Germany. I think for one, because everybody, including us, has been talking nothing but the German election for quite some time. <laughs> um, so if you are sick of the German election, this would be a nice antidote. And um, before we talk about Iceland, though, how is everyone doing? Andres, how was your your trip? Good to have you back. Thank you. Yes, it was an amazing trip. Kenya is a lovely country, fascinating. Um, so so worth visiting. Mm-hmm. It's even worth um, sitting on an airplane for 15 hours straight to get there and then another time to get back. Um, absolutely. Just mm-hmm. just a wonderful place. I missed you guys, though, last week. Um, I, I loved the episode. We missed you too. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how are things in, in Manchester, Chris? Are you festooned yeah. with Tories? Are you well, yeah, I, I, uh, yes. I, well, I mean, I've actually ended up having brunch a couple of times this week already with um with friends who are up from conservative party conference um just catching up getting getting the goss and the lay down um, <laughs> but um yeah the, the the conference but i because of that i've been out just outside the conference venue i haven't been obviously in because i think have a weight in gold to give to the Conservative Party. Um, <laughs> so um, a few protests outside, actually, like not on the issues that you probably would expect. The kind of left wing protesters seem to be leaving them alone this year. Okay. Um, the protests I saw outside this time were uh, one for justice for men and boys, um, arguing okay. that you know, basically a single dad's pressure group, um, and um, also the the waspies, the um, group of um, elderly women who are essentially arguing that they've been let down by pension reforms and that they deserve comp- compensation. Um, but yes, um, it's it doesn't seem like the 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 city of Manchester, which is obviously one of the UK's 
more left-wing cities um, is objecting to the Conservatives as much um, as they have done when they've come here in the past. So I, I suspect that might be because their majority is now so big <laughs> that it doesn't really feel like there's much you can do to influence them um, from a left-wing point of view by protesting. But yeah, we'll, we'll, see in, we'll see in the future if that continues to be the case. How are you doing in London? Yeah, I'm good. Um, the teaching is starting and getting busier every week um, and is, is now requiring me to commute down to the my university, which is near Brighton um, again, which is um, meaning a lot of fun kind of 6am starts some days, which is, which is lovely. But other than that, it's good to be back in the, in the classroom again, um, bam, back teaching. So yeah, uh, it's good. I'm ex- excited to talk um, Iceland as well. Uh, I had a um, one of the countries that we're talking about that I have actually been to as well, and um, saw the Northern Lights from a uh, well-lit car park in Reykjavik, which is not where you want to see them, but at least I can say I've seen them. Um, but yeah, these have seen them. Sounds lovely, nonetheless. It was very foggy. I think would be the mm. word I would use to describe the country. Um, I did go in September, which is probably my fault. <laughs> but um, yeah, on the 25th of September, they they held their parliamentary elections, um, which saw the um, the the three party coalition government reelected um, with a majority. Um, although mm. obviously we have yet to see whether um, whether these three parties decide that they're going to um, re-enter government together, they would have the numbers to do so if they wanted. Um, mm. So, yeah, what would we say at the the kind of the the key headlines here? Um, yeah, that? I mean, apart, apart from that, probably the big notable victory was by the Progressive Party, which didn't quite come first, but it, it did gain five seats, which was by far the biggest gain of any party. Um, the left green movement, which is um, one is the party of the prime minister, lost a few seats relative to the last election. Um, and um, But most other parties were broadly stable. I think the only one that kind of made, uh, made a gain of more, uh, gain or loss of more than a seat was um, the Centre Party, which is a kind of controversial populist party. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, it broadly looks quite similar to the outcome of the last election, but with the exception that the progressives have gained a fair bit and the left-green movement have fallen by a bit more, I would say, basically. Yeah. I would. I would also. I would also note what um, several kind of media uh, headlines were, which was that from for a brief moment it it seemed like Iceland would be the first country to have a majority female parliament. But then there was a recount, and several several seats were then not called for the what was predicted, and so it ended up being a majority male parliament. Yeah, but um, for, for first democratic or first European country, we should say, because, for example, Rwanda has had a majority 
has a majority oh, yeah. vote parliament. But yeah, yes. But, yeah, sorry, um, I, I didn't say, yes, sorry, forgot that key adjective. No, even even like Mexico has a majority female parliament now yeah. because of yeah. like very large gender quotas, which is the, the same case as, as it is in Rwanda. Yeah, um, exactly. No, but the first, yeah, the first European, the first European country to have a majority female. It would have yeah. been, it was, it was a close call, but it yeah. ended up going the other yeah, way. Yeah, it's ended up being 48%. I mean, it, I think there is now some controversy uh, over that recount and that the key constituency which is the northwest constituency is still being subject to some arguments about the results I've, I've read on um a couple of the icelandic english language news sites that there's even talk of having a revote in that constituency because of alleged irregularities in in, in the vote count um yeah well so that I think it's probably unlikely that that will shift again, but I, I, I think it's given that pressure and that there are MPs debating it in Parliament, there's yeah. probably a slight chance that something happens there again. Um, yeah, and, and just, just because we're on the topic, um, it's also interesting to note that Iceland doesn't have a legal gender quota for Parliament. Mm. It only suggests it in, in its legal documents for parties. Um, which would make it different from a place like Rwanda or Mexico, where, where um, female majority parliaments have been created largely on the basis of uh, legal mandatory gender quotas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and to some extent, um, open list systems, like the one Iceland has, where you vote for candidates in, in, a, in the context of a party list system, are... Uh, usually thought of as being worse for women than closed list systems because it makes it harder for parties to just just to basically decide that that's go that they're going to elect you know 50 percent women or what or whatever so that's also you know an optimistic sign yeah i still think that the um the 48 means that it has the the highest proportion of women in parliament in europe um, mm. despite that I mean I think very narrowly ahead of Sweden on that um, so yeah even if it's not the absolute majority yes um, uh, yeah so 48% is pretty close to parity as well so mm. it's just you know good going mm -hmm. you know less than ideal perhaps you know um, but like equivalent you, you, you know you're basically quibbling over a couple of percent really rather than mm. Rather than some of the dramatically larger gender gaps in other countries. Yes. <laughs> uh, all right. So, um, as normal, um, on the ballot box, we'll have a look at the kind of constitutional setup for mm -hmm. Icelandic democracy. Um, this is obviously Iceland is a quite a small country, so we have a sixty-three seat unicameral parliament. Um, it's not not terribly big, um, which and this is where we're going to have to refer you back to the episode we did earlier in the year on semi-presidentialism um, and what exactly constitutes a semi-presidential system, um, mm. that there is a directly elected president, um, although it has a very ceremonial role um, to yeah. play in the, in the Icelandic political system. And, and for all intents and purposes, we're talking about a parliamentary system here. I think. Yeah. yeah, although the presidency does have theoretically quite strong mm -hmm. powers in some regards and there has been some tensions with 
particularly the president before this one, over the extent to which um, those powers should be used. Um, yeah, it's 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 my feeling from reading up on on like the pres the Icelandic presidency that it's largely up to the person who occupies that office. Mm. So, so there is some leeway in terms of like yeah. um, conforming cabinets and having influence there. But that the current president, for instance, has really stepped back um, and, yes. and has just fulfilled kind of a ceremonial role rather than a kind of substantive one. Yeah, I think it's probably his biggest um, and most famous political intervention is where he said that if he could, he would ban pineapple on pizza, uh, which caused huge international uh, media <laughs> coverage. <laughs> um, but yeah, his, his, pre <laughs> his predecessor was notable for uh, a more wide-ranging use of his powers than had been um, the convention in the past. So... Um, that that potential clearly does exist. It's one of the one of the controversies around the um, current Icelandic constitution, um, because essentially um, the constitution as written in 1944 was written very rapidly. It was actually supposed to be a temporary constitution, um, and it explicitly says that in the document. This is a temporary constitution, which has now been enforced um, for numerous decades. Uh, and because of that, um, because because it was essentially a constitution written in a rush as the country departed Nazi-occupied Denmark, um, basically what they did was they just copied down the list of the powers of the Danish king on paper and just said those are the powers of the presidency, <laughs> um, which obviously... Um, Obviously, obviously creates a kind of slightly odd structure and perhaps not as what is intentional for the president. Yeah, so and the, the electoral system will bear some, um, although it has some important differences, some um, relation, um, sort of relationship to the Norwegian system that we talked about a few weeks ago mm -hmm. in that we have um, 54 out of those 63 distributed um, between multi-member constituents, six multi-member constituencies, and then we have some leveling seats on top of it. Um, in this case, there's nine of them, and they have a 5% threshold over which parties need to get to, to qualify um, for this as well. Um, but it, yeah, this is um, the open this open list proportional system. How mm. open are these lists here? I, I believe they're very open. Um, okay. you, you can basically- so Is this like finish? levels of openness on here yeah I, I, I think it basically is entirely decided by the voters okay. uh, I, I mean as you can actually see from the recount changing the number of women women in parliament because that was essentially a recount of the personal votes deciding who it was mm. within different parties who won so that it, it wasn't that there was a shift in the number of MPs for each party that won it was there was a shift within the lists over who it was that was elected for for certain parties um so yeah um like what one of one of the MPs who lost out for example would have been the youngest um Icelandic MP um for the pirate party which um she um lost out um to a different pirate party MP um so, yeah um there's also um 
a little bit of controversy around the electoral system as well in terms of the fact that um, they basically tend to have these kind of big constitutional changes to officially change the structure of the constituencies about every couple of decades. Um, the last one happened in 2000, and um, which um, it tends to then leave um, the population drifting towards Reykjavik. Um, so Reykjavik ends up being underrepresented um, in terms of its um, population relative to the rural areas. Um, and that's that and there is a something in the electoral law which essentially says that if you reach a point in an election where um, where the number of electors per seats is doubled in any constituency versus another one, then you basically give one seat from uh, from the constituency that's been doubled to the other um, to kind of find right a bit. But obviously that doesn't really shift things massively, <laughs> certainly not to deal with that kind of level of discrepancy. Um, so yeah, you tend to have rural areas being overrepresented relative to um, to um, urban areas. And that's, that's something that you can, for example, see in the results in 2017, when the Progressive Party actually won more seats than some more urbanly based parties. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I wonder if when the results of this election come out, there might that 200% threshold might be cleared because it came very close. It was like 198% um, in between the biggest and the smallest um, constituency last time around. So. That's interesting. Um, I, I also, I mean, there's no threshold for the 54 seats that are that are distributed at the constituency yes. level. And I wanted to ask you, Chris, how common is that in a, in a small, like how common is having no electoral threshold in general? We talked about the Dutch election, which has yeah. basically uh, a no, no threshold. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, with, with um, small district PR, it's more common. Um, and it's, you know, it's actually, as Jonathan said, not too unlike the Norwegian system um, in that respect which similarly has kind of a threshold for leveling seats but not for um and you know when when electoral system geeks like me talk about electoral systems we talk about like there being two types of thresholds there's like the legal threshold um which is what we commonly describe as the threshold you know saying five percent for leveling seats that's a legal threshold um but there's also a um what what we call an effective threshold, which is a fuzzier concept, because it will depend on exactly how the votes break down. But for instance, if you have a constituency that has five members, um, that's clearly a higher barrier for smaller parties to get in than a constituency that has 10. Um, and so the way that we generally try to estimate effective thresholds would suggest that for the largest constituency in Iceland, you would still probably need about 5.2% of the vote to get, get in. You know, it might be a bit, in reality, 
depending on how votes break down, either a bit higher or a bit lower than that. But effectively, that's probably about what it's likely to be. Mm-hmm. And that's similar. And then it goes up to about 8.3 in the um, in the constituency of the fewest seats. So the, the barrier isn't actually too different to the legal threshold. It, but obviously, it can be easier sometimes to win a seat in a kind of defined geographic area than um, depending depending on what kind of party you are. Um, so yeah, there's there's a potential there that a party could win a, a seat, particularly in the southwest constituency, um, without clearing the five percent national threshold. And it, it would also be fair to say that that particular structure benefits larger parties more than smaller parties. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. Is there anything else we want to talk about with the kind of constitutional setup? Yeah, I mean, it's worth saying as well, I, I referenced earlier that the constitution was somewhat controversial. There was a, a big attempt to um, basically rewrite the constitution entirely, um, starting from uh, um, basically the the financial crisis in 2008, 2009. Um, the, the, the only left-wing government that Iceland's ever had, which was elected in 2009, campaigned on the promise of replacing that, the constitution, um, and then began a process of crowdsourcing it. Um, basically, anyone could send in suggestions for what could be in a constitution. Then there was an assembly, then there was assembly of 1,200 randomly selected Icelandics. Then there was a constitutional council of 25 elected representatives who who vote a final constitution, which was voted for on a referendum. Um, Iceland, it was on a low turnout, but um, the Icelandic people did vote in favour of the constitution, Um, but that's never been acted on. In part, I would suggest that's because the constitution that was written was like a little bit fuzzy in parts, and that created some potential legal problems. It also, I think the centre-right parties have read it as a fairly radical document (laughs) in parts. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of held back, but it's still a kind of a subject of kind of background discussion in Icelandic politics from what I understand typically parties on the left want to pass the new constitution parties on the centre right um, and, to, and, and, and rurally based parties as well tend to object to it more in part, in part because mm-hmm. some of the sections of the constitution for, for example one of the things that's in the constitution is essentially an attempt to make the seats more equal in terms of the yeah. distribution. There's also a section in there on, um, on which essentially proposes a, some fairly radical rights around environmental, around the environment and uh, natural resources, which of course are a huge thing in Iceland. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's worth just using this as a segue to a little bit of background, just a reminder for our audience that Iceland was one of the countries that was hit hardest by the 2008 financial crisis, mm. proportional to its, its, to, its, um, to its national economy. So it lost around 10% of gross domestic product in one year, massive unemployment, 
and the financial private sector was larger than any kind of form of government or publicly owned um, banking. So that when the three banks in Iceland defaulted, the country was basically at a kind of, um, I think in a, in a really horrible place because mm -hmm. um, there was very little, but I mean, the, the country really needed to kind of like um, act very quickly for the meltdown not to kind of continue and, mm -hmm. and last for, for a whole other generation. And they, they managed to do it pretty well. And it saw, I mean, Iceland saw massive political protest. Like yes. a lot of countries in, in Europe and well, in the yeah. US, well, well, by Wall Street. What's well, been yeah. referred to as the pots and pans revolution by a lot of, by, um, a lot of because of people who are coming out of their homes with kind of kitchen implements to bang on. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's a... It, it was a really interesting moment in 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 politics in, in general and something that was kind of talked about a lot of the time. And it's had a lot of effects on the party system in particular um, since mm -hmm. then. There's been a lot of new entrants that have come in. Um, previous, the previously dominant party, the Independence Party, is not as strong as it was before the before 2008 we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to that but yeah mm -hmm. yeah so maybe it's a good idea to move to the to the parties now and, and like you say chris i mean there's a we can we can split this up into some of the, the more kind of established parties and then mm. the the new parties that have risen um since the financial crisis and some of these parties that have arisen since the financial crisis have also um already left us as well um it's been quite a volatile period um mm. in this and, and this election has probably seen some of the smaller vote swings of the any election since the the since the crash as well, um, like you say, this is the, the the there has been like most of the other Nordic countries, um, there has been a dominant party system um, in the past, but the big difference is that this dominant party was not a social democratic party. It was this party, the Independence Party, which is a centre right party. Um, so yeah, to tell, tell us a bit about the Independence Party and and why it's Come to dominate rather than a, a social democratic party. Yeah, I mean it's a it's an interesting party in and of itself. Uh, so, I mean, as the, as the name suggests, um, one reason for its dominance is it was it was the party of independence. It was it was um, for a very long time the, the party that was attempting to separate um, Iceland from Denmark. Which um, ruled it until 1944. Uh, so it's um, and so that gave it a kind of immediate sense of credibility, kind of national. Uh, it, it, it attached itself to the national project. It was a party that um, that could claim the legacy of of, of that struggle. It's also a party that. Um, it's also the case that Iceland, Iceland has basically had the kind of almost opposite party system to most of the other Nordic states. One of the reasons why Nordic countries have been dominated by the left in the past, typically, is um, because of most of them, you have a very cohered left, that kind of very strong 
single uh, dominant social democratic party with maybe like a smaller party to its left, um, much smaller party to its left. It's been the kind of typical pattern. That's changed with time, but that was kind of historic pattern. Um, and then against that, you had a kind of very fragmented center right. Um, Iceland has had the opposite situation where you've had a kind of clearly dominant um, uni unified centre-right party. Um, and then you've had quite a fragmented centre-left, typically two, two, at least two parties throughout most of Icelandic history. Um, at point three, by the 1990s, there were even four parties broadly hanging around the centre-left. Um, so um, the Independence Party is also, in some ways, a more pragmatic party than the other kind of Nordic Conservative parties, which kind of reflects its casual nature, it, the fact of its dominance. Um, part of that kind of comes out, for example, in its history of coalition partners. It's formed an, actually quite a large number of governments with smaller left-wing parties, sometimes even um, the People's Alliance, which was the party of the radical left, has been um, like one of its coalition partners. So it had a, quite a pragmatic attitude to forming governments, for instance. It also has quite a pragmatic attitude towards... Um, and because of that independence heritage, it's also been quite a nationalist party, soft nationalist. Iceland has, because it's such a small country and so isolated, it has a kind of tendency to have kind of concern around the language being protected um, and agricultural exports and so on. And so the Independence Party has placed itself as quite a Eurosceptic party. Um, it's um, kind of got softly nationalist stances on the economy. It tends to be quite protectionist. And all this is also boiled up in the, the I mean, the obvious thing that if you look at a map of Iceland, this is actually it's quite hard to see this on a map of the world, but Iceland is actually geographically not especially small. It's it's basically, uh, you know, it's larger than Ireland, for example. It's larger, um, larger than Portugal. You know, not especially big countries, but still, you know, mm -hmm. countries that have millions of people in them, but has a population of less than 400,000, um, most of which, live in one city um but there's a very large rural population very large number of people who are dependent on fishing up until the rise of the financial industry fishing was still the kind of predominant industry in iceland so unlike other nordic countries which have been structured around a kind of more um more industrial economic model iceland has been more of a kind of has been had had a stronger kind of rural influence, emphasis. So all that kind of advantages the Independence Party, also to some extent advantages Iceland's second party, the Progressive Party, the um, <laughs> which is their version of a Nordic agrarian party. Yeah, so, so as I say, mm, the other another one of the other sort of big parties historically was this the Progressive Party. Um, mm. which has done frequent, frequently these two parties of governing coalition together as mm. well. Um, and often, sometimes the prime minister has um, come from the progressive party as well, including yes. quite recently, in fact. 
Um, yeah, but before the 2017 yeah. election, it was a, a, a an independence party, progressive party coalition where the progressive party was supplying the prime minister. But yeah, yeah, and the independence party is, yeah, it, it's only ever come second in a general election once in 2009. Mm -hmm. um, its current leader is, but but it has obviously you can still see a kind of real break around 2009 in in its fortunes. Before 2009, it only fell below 30% of the vote once in 1987. After 2009, it's fallen below 30% of the vote in every single election. So it's a much weaker, it's a weaker party than it was. Um, it's um, clearly, there's also, I think, a sense that the party is harder to form coalitions with um, because the party kind of got a huge amount of the blame for the 2008-2009 crisis, which, mm -hmm. I mean, makes sense because it was like, it's kind of like Fina Foyle being blamed for the crisis in Ireland because that was a party that had dominated for so long. I mean, obviously, it takes a huge amount of responsibility for mm -hmm. the economic model the country had. And I, I think mm -hmm. that probably continues to be the case in part because of the independence le party's leader, um, Bjorn um, Benedictson, who is um, from one of the wealthiest families in Iceland. He's um, kind of from a political dynasty. His great uncle was a former Independence Party Prime Minister. Two of his cousins were um, members of the Independence Party, uh, were MPs for the Independence Party. One of, uh, another relative, I believe, was a member of the Supreme Court. Um, so he's had this kind of long, there's a long association. And then on top of that, he's kind of been hit by a series of scandals. The um, 2016, in 2016, the government that he was part of fell down partially because he was named in the Panama Papers. The 2017 government fell down because um, in 2017, his, the government he was leading fell down because um, of a scandal over a child sex offender that his father had released, which came, came up and um, caused a huge amount of consternation between the parties. He's um, been involved in, he's been accused of um, certain financial dealings and stuff and so on. And then earlier this year, he um, actually um, got caught out violating um, COVID um, restrictions in a relatively minor way. We're not talking kind of as bad as, for example, as what happened to Ernest Solberg in Norway, but nonetheless, it was a clear violation of the rules. And um, it, he, he gets nicknames sometimes. I believe he's been nicknamed in the Icelandic press Teflon Bjorn because, like, this doesn't seem to stick to him to for some of his supporters. But I think for other supporters of other parties, there's um, a sense that he kind of represents what is wrong with the Independence Party. And for that reason, there's like a distaste about the idea of making him prime minister, mm -hmm. which is why of the three governments that his party's been involved with since 2009, he's only actually been the head of one of them, despite winning the most votes in all these elections. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Should we turn to the um, the Icelandic left now? Um, yeah. Obviously, so, as you mentioned, traditionally been fairly splintered between um, mm. sort of more, some, well, there was two 
reasonably evenly sized parties, the Social Democratic Party, and then that we mentioned already the People's Alliance, which was mm. um, it's kind of competitor to its left. Um, and then by the 90s, there was more. We had something called the Women's List um, mm. Parliament as well. And then another small party called National Awakening. But these all decided to merge into um, mm. something called the Alliance, um, mm. which is sometimes translated as Social Democratic Alliance. But the name is literally just Alliance um, yes. in Icelandic. Um, but this doesn't go it didn't quite go according to plan to unite them all into a single party because a lot of the people's alliance members broke away yeah. immediately and they formed this the, the left green movement which would you say say safe to say is more kind of a recreation of the people's alliance yeah a little extent? bit yeah. a little bit i mean it wasn't just them uh, i think they also took about half the members of the women's list with them mm -hmm. um but yeah we have <laughs> The funny thing is, we've kind of wound up with uh, with a two two traditional parties of centre left, which look very much like the typical traditional parties of the centre left mm. <laughs> <laughs> throughout Icelandic history, despite this attempt at a big merger. And like officially, the People's Alliance did merge into the Alliance. So, like, there are some People's Alliance people still in the Alliance, mm -hmm. but um, obviously, um, yeah. Obvious and and yeah and obviously the left wing movement is to the left of of the alliance, but also for example, there's differences in terms of the alliance is typically seen as being the, either the most or one of the most pro-European parties in Iceland. Um, when it was when it headed the government in 2009, it was attempting to move towards EU membership, um, whereas the left-wing movement is quite Eurosceptic, it's also quite anti-NATO. Um, and then, for example, the people, the left-wing movement is, is also, uh, has some, some level of rural support, some level of agrarian um, support as well, which isn't, which the alliance isn't quite without, but um, the alliance, I think, is a little bit more of an urban party. Um, it actually holds the mayoralty of Reykjavik right now, for example, at the head of a slightly complicated left-wing coalition, but nonetheless. Um, yeah, and as you mentioned, these these parties formed the government uh, after the crash mm. 2009 to 2013. Mm. Um, and after that, they they really did kind of crash after this this was the, yeah. the kind of apogee of their success um the green left has obviously recovered a little bit a few times and mm. been involved with the government again um the alliance it's, it's a little bit recovered from its kind of the depths of its yeah. decline but it's still it much reduced yeah. it was it was polling very well um earlier on in the parliamentary term i presume because of people upset with the left green movements of uh, um, involved um, within the government in part. Um, I, there was a point where it was where the alliance was battling for first place, but um, we've now reached the election and they've essentially ended up actually slightly falling back a little bit, albeit earlier, only by a very small amount and they haven't lost any seats. Mm -hmm.
Okay, so new n exciting new parties that <laughs> Iceland has obviously got pretty volatile after the twenty thirteen election. Um, yeah, yeah. That, so the I, most famous yeah. moment was when they elected a um, a parody party as uh, to mm -hmm. make a big city council. Yes, um, the, the 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 best party. The yes. best party. Who I highly recommend if anyone's not seen um, their um, party election broadcast which they put out the year they were elected. Um, Google it, uh, go on YouTube and find it. It's fantastic. It's basically all their leading candidates at the time singing a version of um, Simply the Best right? mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> to, with um, some of their policy suggestions in like building a Disneyland outside Reykjavik. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> I believe they, they also promised at one point to be openly corrupt. Yeah, rather than <laughs> corrupt. That's funny. My, my, anyway. my, my absolute favorite moment was after they won the election, they, they still needed a coalition partner, and they said that they wouldn't form a coalition with any party whose um whose representatives hadn't watched all five seasons of The Wire, which, <laughs> which was a fantastic um, <laughs> coalition red line. Um, <laughs> so yeah, this this was one of the earlier parts of that obviously they they were very involved in Reykjavik municipal politics, but then as Bright Future, um, so keeping the same party initials, they did enter the national parliament for a period as well. Yes. Um, but they are, are no longer with us, as happens when it comes to these um, kind of new challenger parties. Um, they don't always make the make the cut in the end. Um, one that's been more sustainable in maintaining in parliament is the Pirate Party, which had various periods has looked like it may even be in line for becoming the largest party but no it was never made it in the end um yeah, yeah, yeah. tell us a bit about the pirate party how have they made such a splash yeah i mean I, I mean to some extent they were kind of building on some of the um outrage um following 2008 2009 they're 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 kind of founding leader the part was the the pirate party doesn't really have an official leader because it's a pirate party and like a huge amount of their politics is about horizontal um, hierarchies and uh, so on. But the woman who's kind of generally considered to be their informal leader and founder, um, 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 Birgitta John's daughter, John's daughter, um, um, was actually a member of um, some predecessor parties called, uh, called the Movement, which was essentially coming out of people who protested um, in 2008-2009. And party has um, obviously, like most pirate parties, parties started off with like talking about the internet and copyright and, um, and transparency and uh, civil liberties and things like that. Party kind of increasingly, uh, uh, party kind of attracted a kind of mix of people who are kind of anarchists and some even right-wing libertarians. But as time went on, the kind of more left-wing elements of the party won out. Um, um, the kind of more right-wing libertarian elements of the party departed it. It's, it wouldn't necessarily describe itself as such, but uh, it's generally seen now as a party very much on the left. It's one of the few parties that, for example, I think it's the only party in Parliament that basically rules out 
um, being in government with the Independence Party, um, which it uses, you know, uh, everything that's wrong with Icelandic politics. Um, it's so yeah. There's definitely a tone of kind of radicalism there. Um, Pirate Party obviously has. Um, as I say, it's got this kind of anarchi anarchistic elements to it, um, albeit, you know, it's still participating within the confines of a parliamentary democracy. So, you know, perhaps not completely um, anarchist, but um, also, um, but um, it's also become in, it's also been subject to kind of continued bouts of infighting, which I think have weakened it a bit in recent years. It's actually declined a bit in this election which has been it, 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 albeit it hasn't lost any seats or anything like that um but it is looking a bit weaker than it it perhaps was um and i think i don't have a very strong sense of what's going on with the pirate party i have to admit but my sense is that the party has been uh, party's um infighting has to some extent which to some extent comes with the territory of the kind of internal structure that it has, um, has kind of caused it a few problems. Mm -hmm. It's, yeah, it's strange that the next episode will also be talking about the other successful pirate party. Yes. The Czech elections. It's kind of strange um, coincidence that we're talking about these back to back. Um, yeah, which is a very different kind of pirate party mm -hmm. as well. But, um, albeit there's similar themes around um, transparency, uh, like the pirate concentration on transparency being a kind of route towards that kind of anti-corruption, anti, -corruption, anti um, you know, and, and kind of political change as kind of motivating factors. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's good. And then we have, um, we have a couple of splinter parties, the Reform Party, um, mm. uh, which is the Independent Splinter Party and the Centre Party, a Progressive Party, Splinter Party. Um, yeah. Why are these parties splintering? What, what what's the what well? The well, I mean, they're also a little bit different. So the Reform Party, I think it's fair to say, has pitched itself fairly clearly as actually kind of an establishment party. Um, it's it, it's a party that splintered out of the Independence Party in the wake of two thousand and eight, two thousand nine, essentially from its more moderate liberal end. Um, it's it's quite pro-European, probably the only party that's kind of similarly as pro-European as the Alliance. Um, it's uh, got a kind of green liberal edge to it. It like talks about envir environment a lot. It talks about um, it, it and yeah, it, but yeah, it's generally considered to be centrist to centre right, but has actually cooperated with. Um, the left in government a little bit. For example, it's actually now part of the coalition of Reykjavik Council, city council, um, which is otherwise basically uh, is otherwise a left wing coalition. Um, it there was also a point where it looked like Iceland might be moving into kind of block politics, like other Nordic countries, where you have a kind of very clearly defined left and right. And the Reform Party um, was the only party polling about the uh, polling about the threshold, and which eventually got into Parliament, which was essentially saying we're not part of any bloc. 
we're not, we're, we, we might do deal with the left, we might do deal with the right, we haven't decided. So um, it's, it, I would say it's probably broadly a quite technocratic party and kind of appealing to a kind of liberal kind of, liberal kind of almost technocratic anti-politics kind of mood of like let's just have people who like who like are kind of experts and will do the policies that kind of make sense the kind of uh, kind of spirit um it seems to be its first election was its most successful um um but um the government it became a part of was very chaotic and and it, it didn't do um terribly well um so it, it fell back a bit at the next election but it's gained a seat here so i think there's still obviously some appeal there <laughs> um yeah and then the center party um i'm gonna try not to be too rude <laughs> the, the Centre Party um, is a party that was formed by the former Progressive Party Prime Minister, whose name I'm not going to try to pronounce because it's a mess of Icelandic characters. <laughs> but um, but um, he, um, he, um, he, he was someone who was essentially on the nationalist end of the Progressive Party and took the Progressive Party when he was a leader in a kind of outspokenly nationalist direction. Um, and um, he, when he was in government, he was named in the Panama Papers along with his um, Deputy Prime Minister, the current leader of the, um, of the Independence Party, um, but it hit him far harder. Um, and so he ended up having to resign as Prime Minister um, as party leader um, and then lost his position and then um, early elections took place and um, he um, his party lost and and so he left the leadership and then after some uh, internal struggles within the progressive party he formed he took he wandered off and formed the center party with I think officially he took two factions of the progressive party with him um uh, which is, as all this suggests those were the kind of more nationalist factions of the progressive party the progressive party is kind of a little bit catch-all like a lot of center parties there's a lot of kind of stuff going on under the surface in it um and so center party kind of hints that he's trying to kind of put himself at the kind of traditional kind of centrist position that nordic agrarian parties like to see themselves as in in reality, the party is often described as quite populist um, and a little and nationalistic. He's said some awful, contra awfully controversial things in the past, some of which involves his statements around why he lost the leadership of the Progressive Party and the, the stuff in the Panama Papers, which is claimed as like a plot by like George Soros the Icelandic and Swedish public broadcasters. Um, it's all a kind of global conspiracy against him by the globalists, um, which, yeah, that's not good. Um, um, so, yeah, he's uh, he, in his leadership of the Centre Party. The Centre Party has said some 
um, has been, his MPs have been recorded saying some quite derogatory things about women. Um, he himself has, for example, suggested that Black Lives Matter is a racist movement, presumably against whites. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, he's... Uh, uh, so, and, yeah, his party has lost a number of seats this election and has... Um, and, and only just scoped into Parliament. And um, so I'm happy to say, good. Um, so, yeah, that's where I am on him. I'm not fond. Um, it's essentially where I am. The other slightly problematic and populist party is the, the People's Party and yeah. the New Party, which sort of similarly has started taking kind of quite socially conservative and anti-immigration kind yes. of positions as well. Um, yeah, I understand it's, it's got its focus on like disability issues as well. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, it's it's primarily focused on actually welfare issues. I actually went onto their website and I mean I did a Google Translate, which isn't like the most scholarly way to mm-hmm. analyze a party, I admit. But I, I wanted to kind of check exactly what issues it was they thought were important. And I did think it was notable that, for example, their um, issues page doesn't really mention anything um, socially conservative, despite the fact that the party has been known to take mm-hmm. these stances. It's basically entirely about welfare and disability. Those are the two things that tends to focus on. So, mm-hmm. um, so it, it's a populist party, and its leader um, Inga Saland is known as someone who's very rabble rousing, who's um, said some quite controversial things in the past. But it doesn't perhaps fit into, it's not, although it has got anti-immigration stances and the party has expressed those in the past, that's not actually its focus as a party. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting, it's an interesting beast. Um, and and Sayland, Sayland is kind of an interesting figure in herself. She was she was a lawyer who got onto Icelandic X Factor, which um, so yeah. And I I think she's a very good example of how the um, of how the two thousand eight two thousand nine crash still affects Icelandic politics because that welfareist populist aspect of her politics has a kind of clear link in to 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 the outcome of that um even if she so yeah it might be it might just be that because of that the economic stuff is more resonant in iceland than it is in other countries i mean the fact that it's also quite geographically isolated also means that although immigration is a political issue in Iceland it perhaps doesn't resonate in quite the same way as it might do in for example in EU countries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah and then um, one more, um, sorry everyone yeah. this is a very long list but there is now a lot of parties in Iceland. There um, is a lot of parties for such a small country potentially. Um, we have the Socialist Party, which is a n- n- brand new contender. Um, yeah, this, this election as well. Um, and I think that the, the name does a pretty good job of summarizing this party's yeah. position. Um, not, not too complicated there. Um, it's yeah. represented on the Reykjavik 
city council and is part of that is i believe is part of that um I think it's part of the we're talking about. No, I think it's part no, of the no, okay. 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 Um. um and, uh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's certainly playing a role there. But yeah, it it, it and it, it had been polling in all such a way as to suggest it was going to get into parliament. I suspect basically the big motivating factor around it is obviously the left green movement has had a lot of internal friction and controversy over the fact that it's now governing with the traditional party of the right in Iceland um, and another and uh, and the progressive party which is a party that has its own centre-right elements at the very least it's quite hard to say exactly where the progressive party sits on the political spectrum but most people put it either in the center or the center right um so it's it, it, although it has the prime ministership it's in quite an unnatural coalition um and that's obviously created a lot of internal frictions within it mm-hmm. and so i suspect probably where most of the support for the socialist party has been coming from mm-hmm. has been people on the left who are disenfranchised of that position and perhaps don't want to vote for the alliance perhaps don't want to vote for the pirates um probably, i mean but none of which are really a traditional radical left party uh, although you, you can kind of describe them as being on the left in various ways um so yeah it's uh, and they're kind of founded by a relatively prominent journalist so they have some visibility for that reason um but they got uh, despite every single poll suggesting they'd get more than get enough votes to get seats they actually only got four percent of the vote in the end um i think the worst the worst poll for them before the election had them on 5.2 and some were even as high as like nudging nine percent so it's quite a surprise that they fell below the five percent threshold um but um Clearly, in the end, that's happened. Maybe people went back to the left greens at the last moment, or and there's also a tradition that has to be said that Icelandic polls typically um, underestimate the um, right and overestimate the left. So that might be part of it too. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was going to say that the the current government that emerged from the 2017 election has the Independence Party. Uh, progressive party and left-wing movement from this mm. from the government which mm. means that 35 out of 63 members of parliament form are kind of like behind the government and mm. the next largest party only had um seven seats right and then from mm. there on you you just get either seven or smaller yeah so the opposition is like incredibly fragmented given this kind of, so I, I know that ideologically it's very tenuous, but maybe it's responding to kind of um, the logic of collective action in that yeah, it's very I, difficult to oppose a government when there's so many actors that have relatively small niches inside yeah. the parliament. Yeah, I mean, if it hadn't been these three parties in um, in 2017, then you probably would have needed at least four parties given the structure of the parliament that was elected that year. So yeah. uh, although 
although it's a messy government, um, it's it might be still be less messy than the alternatives, and like, um, and like the potential left green the left green movement did start out twenty seventeen negotiating, uh, attempting to negotiate a four party government, essentially of essentially with the pirates, the um, alliance, and then the reform party. Um, but that's kind of telling in of itself because the reform party is not really a left-wing party. It can yeah. form government. It, can, it is clearly happy to form governments with the left, but it's not a party of the left. And so uh, I think that was one of the reasons why that, that government did quite come to fruition. Um, I do wonder if this election, um, if the if the left green movement, if that tension continues, if the left green movement decides to drop out of the coalition negotiations, it could be replaced with the reform party. I think that does make it does make a majority, and so that might actually be. Um, an alternative kind of more orthodox centre-right government. Um, but um, whether whether the, um, whether either the left-wing movement wants to drop out or the Reform Party wants to come in, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, something that I wonder about, um, that I was wondering about Icelandic politics was how mm. much do like parties and ideologies count when the country is so small and mm. they obviously count. They're obviously important. Otherwise, you know, um, yeah, ele elect elections wouldn't be organized in this way, etc. But for yeah. instance, um, I was looking at it with 63 seats and a population of 360,000. It's about 5,800. So about 6,000 people per per member of parliament. Mm. And, and the UK, which has a huge parliament, in compared to like the, the most of the rest of the world, um, given it's you know it's still proportionally much larger at one hundred and three thousand people per member of parliament. Yeah. This isn't electors. I'm just kind of crudely dividing up the yeah. population. But with with you know with such um, kind of with, with this sort of ratio, I wonder what sort of plausible cases parliamentarians can make to constituents when they enter kind of in a government coalition, for example. Yeah, um, yeah, and, and, as, and as well, like, it's worth remembering that there are other ideological dimensions too. So for example, <laughs> the Independence Party, the Progressive Party and the Left Green Movement do share a certain agrarian aspect to them. There's different ways in which they approach that. They, there's different levels of concentration that they put on that. But to some to some extent, it's all something that the parties have 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 happening within their structures. Um, so that was a kind of joint point. The fact that they're all Eurosceptic parties as well, and and you know international relations for a country like Iceland is a huge deal because it's very small and very small. But also, um, for instance. Um, you know, Russia is not that far away. It's just the other side of the Arctic Circle. Um, so, and there are there are real tensions around the Arctic Circle in terms of who gets access yeah. to what. 
Um, so there are, uh, so in terms of how you approach the international situation is a bigger deal in Iceland than perhaps in other countries. Um, sure. So- No, uh, agreed, agreed. I mean, I was just wondering mm -hmm. like whether or not, you know, this is kind of, you know, uh, kind of the question that goes back to even mm. classic political theorists who yeah. thought that, you know, the size of a country would affect this, the quality of its democracy. Yeah. And I think people just kind of, I mean, currently political science tends to kind of just ignore that question and just assume yeah. that it's all representat representative democracy. But this is a nice case where you get you know, the, the, all of the institutions of representative democracy, including ideologically divided parties, mm. but then just because it's such a small party, a, sorry, small country, um, there, mm. there, there could be differences in the way that politics work. I don't know. I'm not, not an expert. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I, I do think as well, like, I do think as well that one thing that people perhaps underestimate with countries like this is that if you've got a situation where there's about 5,000 people per, per MP, you've probably got a situation where even if some people don't know their representative directly, they know someone who knows their representative. It's a oh, country, yeah. it's a country that, where it's very easy to have a very kind of instant relationship with, with politics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a, and, and, and in general, people, I, I suspect people in Iceland probably know each other. Like I, I remember, like Iceland, Iceland's postal system is kind of has is kind of famous for the fact that you can literally just the country doesn't have any postcodes, and you can literally just write put on uh, as the address on a letter, uh, um, like the um, the house across from the church in X village and the Icelandic postal system will deliver it. Because <laughs> it's that kind of country. Um, and, and yeah, that certainly has some relationship with size. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I think it probably changes community relations a fair bit. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it's interesting in the context of this outpouring of populism, of course, but yeah, yeah. of course. Mm, it's, uh, and, and for those for those interested, blessed bless blessed Wikipedia has an article called "List of Legislators by Number of Members" that includes a column which, which has a country's population. Although it's yeah. tricky because it's included, it's even included the Vatican City um, on there. But you, know, yeah. um, you can you can have a, you can take a look and see yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, which, which countries have the. There is a political science rule around how how big a legislature mm -hmm. should be. Ideally, the cube root rule, which basically says that you yeah the the, the cube root of the population of a country will is approximately what kind of assembly size it will end up with, which does work for most countries um, pretty well. Um, but yeah, but that's predict but that's predictive, right? I mean, it's descriptive yeah. of. What is the case? It's not yeah, normative. Yeah, it's not it's not, not like normative. A... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, that that is an important point, mm -hmm. and I do always always wonder around, mm -hmm. for example, you know, whether certain constitutional structures should mean that, you know, you want more or less. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. something the cube root law mm -hmm. doesn't really touch upon. 
Yeah, <laughs> the, the the cube root rule does also have its own Wikipedia page. I would point out, which has where somebody has very nicely taken the number of members and the population and done the maths <laughs> and shows you what the difference is between the projected size and the thing. Thank, um, thank God for nerds. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I not. I think there's also. I think um, Tejapuri. Who has written it? It's also so. Um, one thing to also touch upon here as well is that um, obviously the government has done well, and I think it's worth saying that one reason for that is probably the COVID response, because Iceland Iceland has only had thirty three deaths, which even for a very small country is still pretty good going. I think it's probably helped there by geographic isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, they've also rolled out a really successful track and trace program where um, I think at one point they're basically testing like half the population on um, like on a kind of rolling basis so that kind of really helped them kind of keep a good eye on where COVID was but um, mm. yeah that that success which has essentially defined the last half the parliamentary term now um certainly uh, I think it's certainly something that will have been on voters' minds, particularly because we've actually ha- they've actually had some COVID restrictions quite recently. And I, I think they're currently in COVID restrictions, in fact. But um mm. yeah. Yeah, from what I can gather, there was some sort of left-right um dispute a bit on the kind of restrictions from nothing kind of to the extent that we see in, in some other countries. But the, the, obviously mm. the Icelandic economy has got tourism as a massive um, mm. element to it these days. And no tourists have really been coming for, for a year and a half kind of thing. So there was a yeah. sort, of, sort of sense that the centre-right parties were wanted to move more quickly to reopen and get the tourist industry going back up and going. There, there was also, there was also, I saw um, some debate, particularly in the um leadership debates around how to handle all the debt that has been accumulated mm-hmm. by by covid measures which of course is something that a lot of countries are debating um and of course the center right has been pushing for a kind of more austere attitude towards repaying that debt and the left has been generally pushing a, a less austere version which mm-hmm. is a tension that may well come up in the coalition negotiations <laughs> um it will be yeah interesting to watch as they kind of continue mm-hmm. um yeah Very good. Uh, yeah um and i think we've we've mentioned broadly kind of the most the results as we've been going along a lot of the time mm. um so is there anything else significant you think we should mention before we talk quickly about the coalition negotiations no no um i think i think possibly it's worth mentioning that the left green uh, we kind of alluded to this a little bit, but I think it's probably made, worth making it explicit that the Prime Minister is from the left-green movement, which came second last time. Um, she's, you know, very popular. Uh, so on. The party has fallen from second at the last election to third this time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do wonder what kind of effect that might have on the coalition mm. negotiations, as well as the changes within the coalition in general. Yes, yeah, mm. I think it's the, obviously it's the case this time that um, 
the left greens don't have as much bargaining power to make um, mm. to make Catherine the prime minister again as they did last time because yeah. the other two parties could replace them with a smaller party like the Reform Party or something like that. Um, mm. So they don't have that kind of leverage to to sort of agree to the coalition um, yeah. by putting their their their, their woman forward again. Um, yeah, uh, the last I saw that uh, Catherine had explicitly said that they had not been discussing cabinet members yet. And like one tension as well that's also come up is the outgoing government had, including the prime minister, had five ministers for the Independence Party and then three apiece for the Progressive Party and the left wing movement. But if you just kind of work out proportionally no typically typically coalition governments have a number of ministers for each party that fairly closely resembles the proportion that that coalition that each party has within the coalition um if you do that for this case then essentially the left green movement should drop a minister down to two and the progressive party should gain one um, so, um, and and that's clearly already been noted because Catherine Jacob's daughter daughter has already said that she, if the government continues, she doesn't want to see the number of ministers change. Um, but whether that might be a, a tension point as as negotiations continue, I think is a, an interesting question. Yeah, nonetheless, um, these three parties are renegotiating the current government yeah. first um uh, yeah and and i think and they said explicitly before the election as well that if they were um re-elected to a majority they'd try at least try and form a government mm. together which yeah uh, and and the government has been actually surprisingly successful it's like three party coalitions in iceland have typically collapsed mid-parliament that's never happened with this government it mostly delivers on its aims. All the parties have, I mean, even the left wing movement, which you know had had, it was a difficult government for it in many ways, has still come out as the largest left wing party. Has come third. You know, it's it could have been a lot worse for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, you can definitely see the appeal in continuing from that point of view. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I think they've they've also viewed just the fact that the part three parties have actually uh, together have actually gained seats that mm. is a sort of a broad that the Icelanders are broadly yeah. satisfied with the direction of the kind of current government. Yeah, and and given that the left green movement was participating in the election, saying that if if we win another majority, we will try and form another government as well. I think there's a justification there in terms of, okay, like our voters can hardly complain if we form another government because we said that we might try and do that. Um, if you want, we don't want another, If you and if you didn't want another government formed, then you could have voted for the Pirate Party. You could have voted for the Alliance. You could have voted for the so- for the Socialist Party. I mean, even 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 the Alliance actually this time around said it wouldn't form a government with the Independence Party. So um, so you know you had clear options if you were on the left and didn't want want the left wing mm-hmm. if you didn't want your chosen party to go into coalition with the Independence Party. Yeah, 
So, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I, uh, it might be an odd government, but like, this is definitely an argument. It still has a mandate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I think maybe that's a wrap for Iceland, unless anyone has anything they want to get in quickly. No. Um, no, it's good. Uh, good. Uh, so we'll obviously, as with the other elections, we'll keep an eye on the progress of coalition negotiations as they go on. Um, yeah. And everyone visit Iceland. It's very beautiful as well. Yeah. And uh, and I've, it's actually on the green list, UK listeners as well. Yeah. I've, I've, long, I've long wanted to visit. I, I, I may well try and do so soon. Um, <laughs> yeah. And we'll be back next week to discuss the Czech Republic which mm-hmm. I'm very much looking forward to. Um, so, yeah, look forward to that one. Okay. All right. I'll see yeah. everyone next week. Um, please remember, rate and subscribe wherever you're listening and follow us on Twitter as well. All right. Bye. 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 Bye.